1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today, I'll be talking to the author, co-author of The New Economic Population. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today, I'll be talking to the author, co-author of The New Economic Populism, How States Respond to Economic Inequality. The book is published by Oxford University Press, and I'm talking today to Christopher Whitco. Chris, how are you doing? Doing very well. Thanks for having me on. We, uh, yeah, we appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's such a, such a, a treat to have read the book. We um, are talking about the book a while back, and it's nice to see it out. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and also your co-author? Sure. I'm uh,
0: Chris Whitco, and I'm a political science professor um, at the University of South Carolina, and I actually run the Master's of Public Administration program. I study public policy, and a lot of the focus is on the states in my own research. Bill uh, Franco, William Franco, is uh, an assistant professor at West Virginia University, and uh, he studies a lot of stuff related to income inequality, and he's just an all-around sharp and outstanding guy. <laughs> so it was great to work on this book with him.
1: Yeah, fa- fantastic! It's um, uh, a really interesting book. covers a lot of ground. Some of that ground that we hope to talk about today, but not all of it. Uh, let's let's start with the title because the. Um, the term populism uh, has so many different definitions and people use it to mean so many different things. Uh, do you mean the the new economic populism of Trumpism or do you guys have a, have a different meaning when you use that in the title and use it throughout the book? So talk to us about the just the title, new economic populism.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, we um, you know how this works. I mean, we came up with this title probably, you know, two or three years ago before uh we, we knew Trump was going to be in, in this position of authority. Um, so we do have quite a different uh, meaning to economic populism, more akin to, I guess you'd think about the populist movement of the late 1800s. Um, what we really mean are just basically that in response to, to economic inequality, states are pursuing some policies That are populist in the sense that they have broad majoritarian support. Um, And what we basically mean by new is just, I think it's become, for most Americans, we've kind of looked to the federal government to solve economic problems since the New Deal. And what we're seeing in the last few decades, anyway, is that in the face of rising economic inequality, certainly the federal government's response has either been anemic or. To vigorously worsen the problem, we see this with the the recent tax bill, you could argue. Um, so that's kind of the new element of the populism. But no, we're not uh, we didn't have kind of trumpism in mind when we came up with this uh, title. We were kind of thinking about majoritarian policymaking policies that are popular among the public, but which are maybe, not always being pursued due to uh, the political power and influence of different groups and institutional structures and things like that.
1: Yeah, and let's also talk about economic inequality itself, uh, which you describe in the book as as on the rise and, and changing, and, and others have made that case as well. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what makes that case strongest for you. What 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 indicates to you? That um, economic economic inequality, which has always been an issue, is is a exacerbated issue or a more prominent issue over the near term, um, and and different in some way than in the past. Is there a statistic or a finding or an anecdote that?
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's actually interesting. There's there's a little debate kind of emerging right now. I think the, the people that have made the strongest case that economic inequality is growing pretty rapidly in the US are Piketty and Sayes. Of course, Piketty has the, the big book that was actually a New York Times bestseller, remarkably enough. And they've really done a lot of the work on the data looking at national level of economic inequality. There's been some pushback against against uh their work just in terms of how much inequality has actually grown if you look at if you make adjustments for different tax structures in the 60s you could find that there was actually higher inequality back then and if you consider things like uh healthcare benefits and stuff like that as income you know in income inequality could be less but i think most scholars at least at this point agree that it's increased considerably since the 1970s you know and even if you kind of even if you're a skeptic of the degree of increase it's still nevertheless the case that uh in, income inequality is pretty high in America compared to other countries historically and that's true now and then also it's really high in some states so thinking about this from the standpoint of state policy making You know, even if even if uh, overall economic inequality has grown only modestly, it's still a substantial and growing problem in a number of states. And of course, it's just become a lot more salient with the public in recent years due to um, Occupy Wall Street. You know, Obama made a big speech on it in Kansas a couple of years ago. Even Republican presidential candidates have been forced to talk about the issue of economic inequality during their campaigns the last time around. So it's certainly growing in in salience. Um, and I think it's probably growing, <clears throat> excuse me, in fact, as well, based on the, the data. But uh, there is a debate there on just how much it's growing.
1: Now, as you noted earlier, and and also as you suggest uh, just just now, we might expect the federal government to take the lead on addressing these economic inequality issues, given that they are present in a multitude of states. Uh, given that in the past the federal government has taken that lead, uh, why hasn't the federal government taken the lead on addressing economic inequality over, let's say, the last twenty to twenty-five years? What what are the prominent factors that explain why this hasn't come out of Washington?
0: Yeah. Um, so the the I mean, one reason is that Washington just isn't doing uh, very much of anything. Um, you know, with growing polarization, we've seen growing uh, gridlock and just a, a, a kind of decrease in congressional policymaking of a lot of in a lot of different areas. And I mean, think about how difficult it is to just get a budget passed these days, let alone tackling long-term, intractable, very difficult problems. Uh, the other thing is, you know, there's an emerging literature, of course, in political science that. The wealthy have a disproportionate amount of influence in political institutions and policymaking, and the wealthy are the current beneficiaries of economic inequality. You know, if we think about the growth of the financial sector or any other areas where you've seen massive incomes increase, of course, those folks don't really want to address income inequality because it can have negative economic implications for them. And it's really easy to get a hold of the numerous veto points in the U.S. policymaking system nationally because you have not only the separation of powers and the different institutions, but then you have veto points built on top of that, um, you know, the filibuster in the Senate and other things that really make it hard to overcome entrenched Powerful interests in policymaking in D.C.
1: Now, you talk in the book about how, in response to this inaction at the federal level, uh, the states is where the real um, action has been, and and you specifically talk about the the state level initiative process um, and how effective it's been uh, used to address inequality. Um, I wonder if you talk first how about how initiatives work exactly. And about whether the public is generally supportive of them when they do, in fact, aim to address inequality. That is, the backers of these initiatives, uh, do they get public support, uh, or or is the public uh, more tepid in the response? Yeah.
0: So the the initiative is interesting because um, it actually it actually was put into place in, you might argue, economic and political circumstances very similar to what we're experiencing right now. uh, When you had the robber barons in in California, the the railroad uh, magnates kind of running state politics and preventing uh, progressive legislation or populist legislation from being enacted, the initiative uh, was adopted really in response to that so that people could circumvent the formal policymaking institutions by essentially getting signatures from the public and getting legislation on the ballot and then having a direct vote on it. So there's been a good deal of research by economists and political scientists, people like Matsusaka and Liz Gerber. And what that research has found over the years is that the initiative being there brings policy more directly in line in public with with public preferences. So if we think back to the 70s you might say elites were a little bit more uh, a little bit more liberal or left leaning than the public and the response to that was things like the tax revolt and, you know, I lived in California for a number of years, and I was really not a big fan of the initiative, having experienced that and and seen how Prop 13 and things of that nature have led to cuts in education funding. So the initiative isn't really a, a liberal or a conservative policy tool. It's something that exists that can bring policy more in line with public preferences. And that can happen by getting actual legislation on the ballot. But Gerber's research shows that even if you don't get legislation on the ballot, just the threat of a ballot initiative can lead the um, legislature to actually pass legislation. And so what we're seeing now is kind of the flip side of the of the tax revolt of the 1970s. You have a situation where people are growing more concerned about stagnant incomes for low wage workers, about inequality, and the initiative is being used to address this. I mean, we, we have a chapter on the minimum wage and we're seeing a lot of state policy making centered around the initiative on the on the minimum wage. So the minimum wage is a good example of a policy that's really popular. Of course, Democrats support it at very high levels, but Republicans also support it at very high levels. If you look at polls, you know, it's usually about 70% of the public supports increasing the minimum wage. But a lot of legislatures who are controlled by conservative Republicans or where you know low wage industries have a lot of power and influence won't touch it. And it's in that situation where you can see the initiative being really important to getting minimum wages increased, So even some relatively conservative states in recent years have enacted minimum wage increases via the initiative, places like Missouri. Uh, most recently, I think South Dakota uh, enacted a, uh, a minimum wage increase through the initiative, and there's been other examples in other states. So when you get things like the, the minimum wage increase uh, on the ballot, people will support it.
1: Even in situations where... Um... Uh, elected officials are are hostile to to the uh minimum wage increase. Is that is that the the point you're making?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we um we we find an association in the in the data analysis that we do some statistical analysis though I will say we try to put as many of the statistical details in the appendix as possible to make it pretty readable, I think. Uh, but yes, we do find that, and sure, having a liberal government, a liberal elected officials, is going to lead to some higher minimum wages. But even after you control for that, you're going to find that states that have the initiative, uh, a robust initiative option, anyway, are going to be more likely to raise their minimum wages as well.
1: What if you could talk a little bit more about California, which you just mentioned, and and has this long tradition of direct uh, direct democracy. Um, You mentioned how uh, direct democracy was used um, in the 1970s uh, to to limit uh, tax collection, um, but you suggest that that's changed. Um, How so? I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit more about uh, California in in, uh, detail.
0: Yeah, sure. California is an interesting example because in in recent years, they've actually, well, they passed several years ago, they passed a pretty substantial tax increase on high income earners. And, you know, there was, of course, a lot of argument back and forth about what that would do to the economy, you know, how that would affect wealthy people leaving the state and this and that and the other thing. The bottom line is there's certainly been no negative uh, repercussions for economic growth in California. The budget has been doing fantastic since this tax increase was enacted. And then they just uh, basically extended it through the initiative process um, last year. So we're going to see this in place for a number of years. And, you know, it's really quite interesting because obviously California was in many ways ground zero for the tax revolt. And maybe we're seeing right now that in some ways it's ground zero for the tax, uh, I guess, counter revolution, you might call it. And uh, so the public has been very, very much in favor of these two initiatives that have raised taxes on the wealthy and had a lot more revenue to state coffers, and so Uh, as of right now, there hasn't been any real negative economic implications for the the, uh, economy in California, and it's really helped, you know, raise funds for the budget. So, so far, so good in California. And, you know, what we argue in the book is that if you see some policy examples of this and you're in a neighboring state... um, you know, maybe you think, "Hey, well, California did this. Let, let's give this a shot." And so, maybe these these policies that address inequality and seem to be working in other ways will spread more widely than just California and states like that.
1: But but what about working in terms of economic inequality? Um, that they haven't harmed uh, uh, sort of the um, the overall economy is one thing, but but that isn't necessarily uh, to say that they have uh, improved. The problem of of uh, increasing economic inequality. Do we know yet whether these uh, this state level experimentation uh, works in that way? Has it has it reduced economic inequality? Has it shifted things in those ways, or is or is it too early to know?
0: Yeah, I think I think in the case of California, it's it's just too early to know. You know, there is quite a bit of literature on top marginal tax rates and economic inequality. Most of it. Uh, indicates that, of course, if you raise taxes on the wealthy, there's going to be less economic inequality. It, it depends, I guess, what you do with the revenue once you raise it. Um, but, you know, there is actually a paper I saw not too, I cannot recall the author, unfortunately, but it was a, an analysis of, of income uh, taxes and uh, inequality, and they did not find a Negative association between higher tax rates and inequality. They actually found a positive association. So I haven't dug into that, but I think most of the most of the literature that's out there, and it's kind of intuitive based on our own historical experience in the U.S. That higher marginal tax rates would naturally have to um, lead to less inequality. But you know we don't have good evidence of that at the state level yet in California,
1: anyway. Not that I've seen. Now, at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that this book was by and large written before uh, Donald Trump uh, was elected, um, but it's hard not to read this book now in, in light of uh, the kinds of policies that, that he has advocated for, including the, the most recent tax reform uh, bill. Um, what about, what about the, the, the case that the federal government will begin to learn from the experiments at the state level? this has happened in other scenarios and including ones that you mentioned in the book. Um, Is there any reason to think that some of these successful, as you deem them, successful experiments with uh, state level policy work on economic inequality have trickled up to federal policymakers? Is there, are there signs that that's happening or is there more of the same in Washington?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Probably, probably one of the reactions because an argument in the book, of course, is that if you look historically, if you think about responses to the depression, responses to the problems associated with industrialization, we saw that programs like pensions for widows and orphans, workers' compensation, minimum wage laws, et cetera, all started at the state level and only later bubbled up to the uh, federal government level. You know, that process you, it, it usually didn't happen immediately. You usually, were, there was a substantial lag. There was resistance from Congress um, and the President, and then even after the federal government passed laws, in some cases, the Supreme Court struck down things like minimum wage laws. Um, now, I will say, right now, we are not seeing with the current Congress, uh, you know, and President, we're a- obviously not seeing any uh, tremendous interest in looking to the states for examples of how to combat economic inequality. <laughs> it would be kind of foolish to suggest that we are. I do think over the longer term, obviously, we have elections uh, and, you know, the Republican Party, or at least this conservative Republican Party, is not going to be in power forever. Um, and, uh I do think over the long term there's absolutely the possibility and this is just based on you know kind of looking at what has happened through US history I do think there's the possibility in the coming years and decades that we will see the federal government more committed to combating economic inequality and at that point it will be these kind of state policy experiments and policy lessons that can inform federal policy making and you know some of what we talk about or most of what we talk about in the book is just things that have been around for a while, tax increases on the wealthy, the minimum wage, the earned income tax credit we talk about in the book. But you're also going to see new policies being developed and floated at the state level. We've seen this at the local level. In Portland, there was a a, a CEO tax floated where if the ratio of CEO pay uh, compared to the average worker pay got above a certain level, there would be a surtax charge. You know, so there hasn't been um, as much of that experimentation uh, at the state level yet, but we're starting to see it and you're going to see more of it in the coming years would be my prediction. And I do think that at some point the federal government, there's going to be a government that's elected that's going to be interested in this and want to address it. And those those policy examples will be
1: important. Yeah, the, the book, again, is The New Economic Populism, How States Respond to Economic Inequality. Uh, you've been hearing from Chris Witko and his co-author, Bill Franco, uh, published the book uh, with Oxford University Press. Chris, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Well, thanks very much. I appreciate it. It's great to talk about the book and, and great to be with you.